Oh, boy. He must have really messed you over. Yeah, fuck you, Jason. Hello again, friends. This is the Film Effect Podcast. Good morning, Film Effect. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the game right there. That's World War Three. Fucking hot recording right now. I literally never wanted to punch movie in its face more than I had last night. Definitely worth your time. It's it's definitely worth revisiting. Fifteen minutes in, I'm like, uh, Dorothy, we're not in Oakland anymore. It's in 4K, buddy. Check it out. It was kind of like an afternoon, you like drive time type thing, or like the type of podcast you listen to at work. So let's get down to the nitty gritty. Happy Friday the Thirteenth to everyone, and welcome to a very special Film Effect podcast, the weekly show that deep dives into a different film each episode. And I can't believe it's taken this long, but here we are. We're finally given a Friday the Thirteenth movie the full Film Effect treatment. I'm Ed, and I'm Corey. And this is Friday the 13th, Part 6, Jason Lives. Friday the 13th, Jason lives. Tommy Jarvis goes to get rid of Jason Voorhees' body once and for all, but inadvertently brings him back to life instead. The newly revived killer is now on a brand new killing spree, and Tommy may be the only one who can defeat him. So it's Friday the 13th, and after 95 episodes, we're finally covering a film from the popular horror franchise. Corey, have you ever seen a movie that's more in on its own joke than this movie is? No, I, I haven't. And, you know, when I was young watching it, you know, we'll get into first time viewings, but, you know, I I just didn't realize what this movie was trying to do when I was younger. I just thought there was odd things in the movie. Uh, but this is one that I've always grown to appreciate uh, more and more as I watch it. I mean, you know, I'm not as huge of a fan of Friday the 13th series as I was when I was younger, uh, just because my taste has changed. But I still like it. I mean, the fourth one is still my favorite, but this one has continued to grow on me. Part six it just keeps get uh, getting better and better with each subsequent viewing for me. Oh, absolutely. Uh, for 
years growing up, I was always a new blood cat. That was always my favorite. That was always the top film to me. I mean, I got a poster right behind me that's signed, that's signed by Laura Parker Lincoln. And, you know. She played Carrie years, in the yeah, movie. Yeah, she was Carrie, <laughs> Tina. And I, I loved it. I still do. Don't get me wrong. Um, but growing up more, I'd say over the last five or six years, maybe not that long, over the last handful of years, just chalk it up to that, this has kind of overtaken uh, that for the top spot. And, uh, you know, I'm not mad at it. Uh, I, I'm, I love this movie. I adore this movie. This movie is, you know... I love what McCaughlin, Tom McCaughlin is doing with this whole entire movie. Um, I, I, fortunately, I had the opportunity uh, a little bit over a year ago, last spring, uh, there was a 35th anniversary uh, screening that we did on Zoom because everyone was still in the pandemic mode. And uh, my buddy Jonathan over at Crazy Train Radio, shout out, he put that together and Tom McLaughlin was there, the director. Um, his ex-wife Nancy, uh, who plays uh, Lizzie in this movie—not Lizzie. Um, I'm sorry, she plays uh, Lizbeth. Um, Tom Friedley, who plays Court, more on him in a little bit, and um, C.J. Graham, who plays Jason. Oh, and also, um, uh, who else was it? Uh, uh, Vincent Guastafaro, who plays Deputy Rick. He was also there, him and his wife. Who's all funny enough, his wife is um uh, what's her name? What, the couple that we see later on who you're just randomly in the woods and get double impaled and stuff. The, the the girl, she ended up marrying the guy who plays Deputy Rick in real life. So huh, she was no there. shit. So yeah, we all did all Yeah, not a lot of people do. So um as usual, we've done this a handful of times with different movies, with different guests. Um, Jonathan just watches. We we all watch the movie on Zoom together, and then the stars just interact, and uh, you know, it's kind of like doing a live commentary. And then afterwards, just a Q and A for about an hour, an hour or so. And then Jonathan and someone else did a, a like a trivia or something like that for some uh, pretty cool stuff that were signed by the actors from the movie and it was all an all fun time and uh just I got to really see you know I've seen numerous documentaries on this franchise and a lot of behind the scenes stuff on this movie in particular and so I've always known that the director Tom McLaughlin is always you know, I've, I've always understood what he was going for but after that watch along last year I got a better understanding of it if that makes sense so yeah and there's yeah, all, and there's so much another reason why i picked this movie to do because you know we're not doing them in order unfortunately and it's kind of a shame because when i started the podcast last year uh spoiler alert friday the 13th is i was my favorite franchise like jason was my top dog I think up until we covered all the Halloween films last year, I think that that franchise overtook it after getting a much better appreciation of watching all those and shit. So anyway, um, this movie. I picked this because this is the best. And it's because I, I just I think that you and I would have the most fun with it. Because when I first started the podcast, like I was getting ready to talk about 
Um, I was gonna divide these up and not do like 12 episodes. I was gonna take like the first four movies and put them in one episode and do like a Friday the 13th. Like, I was gonna sort them in the volumes. Like, volume one was gonna be, you know, the first four films. And I was gonna call it the uh, the Vengeance Saga because that's you know when Jason's a human still technically and he's you know still avenging his avenging his mother. So and then you know the the, the second was going to be like the zombies or whatever I don't know I didn't think that far ahead but that was my idea I'm kind of glad that I aborted that and I'm doing this instead and you know we'll get back we'll, we'll eventually do all the movies but I wanted to start with both my favorite and the one that I think that you and I would have the most fun talking about so yeah, here we for are. sure. It, it makes sense. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I don't think we necessarily have to cover everything in order. I, I think it can get kind of boring that way. You know, I, and I, I think picking out what we like is the best method. And also, um, just foreclosure, I am not the biggest fan of the first film. I've been on record saying that numerous times, and I'll say it again. I do not think the original Friday the 13th is the all-great horror film that everyone makes it out to be. I said it. Sorry. No, I, I'm there with you. I mean, I don't... I mean, the first one is fine. The second and third one are okay. Like, to me, the fourth one, out of the original four, like, that's the only one I genuinely like and rewatch fairly regularly uh, between all those. I mean, I'll take the later movies <laughs> in a lot of cases, you know, because they might be goofy, but at least they're a little bit more entertaining, you know? And you know what, Corey? That used to be me. That really did. Um, but I think it was rewatching all the movies after I got the Scream Factory box set a, uh, a year or two ago. Um, I'm, I have a better appreciation of parts two and three. I really do, especially two. I've always been a fan of three, but two, I was like, yeah, take it or leave it. But two is one of my favorites now, really. But I get it, you know. Four is amazing, you know. At Ted White's Jason, and uh, you know, hey Ted, where's the corkscrew? Such great stuff comes out of the fourth film, and um, you know, the fifth one, yeah, the less said, the better. And here we are with this one. So let's just, you know, that was our little prelude. To getting people familiar where we stand on the Friday at Thirteenth series, so uh, that being said, first time viewings. Uh, it's it's just that you see this is actually uh, my my first time. No, no, my first. It's my first time uh, since my first time. So technically, that's my second time. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to suck at it. So if I'm not up to uh, for me, I've said this numerous times on different horror episodes, Nightmare Theater. And I'll say it again. I'll explain it for the 20th time. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, Nightmare Theater growing up, local Channel 54, Saturday afternoon, 2 o'clock, there was always a two-hour horror block of just random horror movies. And there was always random franchise sequels and originals, like The Pit I saw for the first time in Nightmare Theater and Vamp and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, this one here, this was a Nightmare Theater uh, regular. This, I... I I remember watching this one there a handful of times, uh, to be honest with you. And I have memories of yeah, I have memories of watching this film with you growing up. So Yeah, same here. Uh so my first time viewing was pretty much the same as you, uh all on Nightmare Theater or on uh Monster Vision. I remember uh they always 
uh, they ran a Friday the 13th marathon. Joe Bob. Joe Bob complaining uh, about the censors. I remember that. Um, but yeah, I just, it's hard for me to remember exactly when I saw this film in particular as opposed to the other ones just because you, they you all can't ran together. It. It's impossible. I can't pinpoint it. I know you can't pinpoint it. You know, we were yeah. young. We were, we were probably too young <laughs> to be watching these movies. Yeah, and, you know, they already had eight out at this point, so I just remember every Friday the 13th, they would always run a couple. I'd always be excited on what they were actually going to play mm-hmm. on the Friday the 13th. Um, so I always have fond memories of uh, us watching it. Um, you know, it, it's just funny because I'm not super up on this series. You know, my favorite uh, as far as, like, the old-school 80s, franchises is definitely nightmare on elm street i just a huge fan of freddy um Mm, i'm a huge fan of the sequels more so as -hmm. well and i think the original is a legitimate like classic horror movie in my opinion whereas friday 13th the first one's okay but nightmare on elm street to me is legit like i i actually really enjoy that so i'm not as up on friday 13th like uh i was when i was younger um Case in point, I thought Kane Hodder was in this movie, and he completely isn't. I uh, rewatching it just now because I haven't seen these in a long time. No, I'm like no Kane, <laughs> no Kane Hodder. I was like, I, I remember uh-uh. when he first pops up, and I'm like, it doesn't look like Kane Hodder because I mean I've seen obviously the Jason movies. I'm a fan of the Hatchet movies where he plays uh, Victor Crowley and those. Oh, so oh yeah, I was like, this doesn't look like Kane Hodder, and then I realized. Uh, you know, it was, uh, what's his name? CJ, CJ Graham. Yeah. CJ Graham. So, but, uh, yeah, anyway, I just had five memories. Uh, but yeah, one viewing in particular doesn't stand out on this one. Um, but yeah, every time, like I mentioned, it just keeps getting better and better. So looking forward to talking about it. Yeah. Same here. Um, yeah. Look guys and gals, you've already got your story. The little prelude before we went in the first time viewings. That was your story. So we're going to get into the live top five. Rob, it's your turn. Okay. I feel kind of basic today. Top five side ones. Track ones. Janie Jones, Clash. From The Clash. Mm. Let's get it on. Marvin Gaye from Let's Get It On. Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit off of Nevermind. Oh, no, Rob, that's not obvious enough. Not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return? Lewis, so you can uh, get up a... Shut up, shut up. <laughs> white Light, White Heat, Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though not and on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection. The song is Radiation oh. Ruling the Night. Right, let's do top five favorite sixth entries of horror franchise. That was a tongue twister. Um, That was a lot. All right, so we're doing an honorable mention for my first one. Uh, speaking of Elm Street, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare is my honorable mention. Um, I don't even know why I'm mentioning it because that movie, uh, for more or less, you got to take it or leave it. Um, but yeah, just wanted to throw that out there just because. And my number five is, uh, okay, Halloween, Curse of Michael Myers, but I want to stress, specify... What? I want to specify producer's cut. Producer's cut. I have to stress it's producer's cut I'm putting on here. Not the theatrical. So, Uh, look, dude. I I have thoughts about the movie. There's a whole episode on it. Check it out. Uh, But, yeah. um, Fuck you. What's your number five? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, 
we don't. This laptop five isn't going to be a huge high bar. I mean, we're talking about the no, sixth, it's really not it's, the sixth it's... movie in these uh, franchises. Um, but my number five is Saw Six. Um, so I'm a huge fan oh. of the Saw series. Um, you know, granted, Saw Six in the grand scheme of things is probably one of the worst Saw movies, but that's okay because I think the original three Saw movies are all fantastic. Uh, you know, I've, I've went back and rewatched those several times. The sixth one's still good though. It's got, uh, it's named Costa Mandalore. Um, oh, he's in like all of them from the fourth one on the yeah. third one on. He's like the but, heir apparent, um, um, for Jigsaw. Um, yeah, the so sixth one, this was the, uh, insurance guy. Yeah. The insurance guy. Yep. So, uh, you know, like I said, not my favorite one, but for the purposes of this list, and also, you know, I have fond memories. I mean, we went and saw every Saw movie every year. Uh-huh. Uh, just it's Halloween, un- it must be Saw. Yeah, it was just a unique thing, like seeing, you know, in the 80s, you had horror movies come out relatively quickly within a year or two, but never, like, every year on Halloween. So I just have fond memories of seeing every Saw um, every Halloween uh, for that yeah. seven-year period. So, yeah, it was fun yeah, times. So, do I. so Saw 6. All right, number four for me is going to be Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the beginning. Technically, that's the sixth century. And uh, I don't know why this movie gets a bad rap. I really don't. I rewatched it about a couple years ago. It definitely wasn't last year. I think it was like the start of the pandemic. I watched the the two Bay-produced ones, um, the remake, and then this one, of course, that I'm talking about. And I, I don't understand the hate for it. Um, I think Arlie Ermey's just as good as he is in the first one. Or, I mean, when I say the first one, I mean the, the remake. And, um, you know, it's got that whole family aspect. Uh, Leatherface himself is just as menacing. Yeah, is just as menacing. I, in fact, I think he's even scarier in, in this one. Um, plus, he's, it's a fucking brutal movie. It really is. God damn, that movie's brutal. Um, so yeah, and, and come on, spoiler alert, we knew there wasn't going to be a survivor in this one, so it was pretty cool seeing him pop up in the end, and just saw the shit out of Jordana Brewster through the back seat, so, um, alright, what about you, four? Uh, great minds think alike, my number four is Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the beginning, um, alright, yeah. Yeah, when it popped into my head, like, I had to look it up to make sure. I was like, I'm pretty sure that's the sixth one Mm -hmm. uh, when I was thinking about it. Uh, But I'm right there with you. I I like the remake, and I like the uh, sequel. I think they're both good. Uh, The sequel's definitely heavy on the gore, which I appreciate. I mean, like you said, it's just brutal. I remember I saw it in theaters, and I was like, oh, man, this is, like, on a different level compared to, like, the last one. I mean, the last one had gore, but this one takes it up a notch. So, yeah, I mean, as far as, like, a sixth entry, even though it's technically a prequel, it's really good, and I'm I'm right there with you. I'm a huge fan of Arlie Ermey. I think he's great in the movie. So, yeah, yeah big fan. Yeah, it's 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 not like, you know, he digressed or, or just, you know, toned it down or whatever. It's just the same fucking out-of-his-mind character. In the, or that, the same guy that he was in the... the, the remake so anyway moving on number three curse of chucky a little uh return to uh horror for this one um i don't know it's it's not the 
holy grail of Chucky films that a lot of fans look at it as. But I, I, I think it's just, you know, the whole return to form and, you know, bringing back the whole horror element and um, doing all that is, uh, you know, it's it's a step up from where the series was going, I guess. I don't know. Uh, depending on who you are and where you look at things I don't at, know. I that, like Seed at of that Chucky. time. I think that's a good movie. Because Seed of Chucky is one of my favorite of the, uh, favorites of the franchise for so many reasons. One day we're going to cover the shit out of that, and I cannot wait. Um, that's right. You heard it here first. But, yeah, I, I do, you know, like, there's a bunch about that movie I like. Although, I, th- I was so happy uh, that they were, well, I thought they were getting rid of that fucking stitched look. I am not a fan of the stitched up Chucky look. Number one, it makes no sense because at the end of part three, he got chopped the fuck up into itty bitty pieces. A fucking industrial fan. He got chopped up so much he exploded. Okay. I'm sorry, but you're not going to find like four or five chunks and just stitch them up like they do in Bride of Chucky and that's just the Ta-da! It's just the way they carried on with. They rolled with that shit for years. And I thought that they got rid of it with Curse. But then, surprise, he's wearing some sort of makeup or something. Or plastic that's covering it up. Because, you know, his true form is revealed at the end of the movie. I don't know. The only thing I don't like about Curse of Chucky. Not the, I'm, I'm just going on and on about this fucking movie. But just real quick before I pass it on to you. I don't like... His appearance in that movie, the way Chucky himself looks in that movie, I have a just I it, I don't know. It's I have a gripe with it. It's too overdone. But anyway, uh, number three for you is. Uh, well, before I say number three, actually, I was gonna say Curse of Chucky would probably be my honorable mention. Uh, that was the other one okay. I was batting uh, between that or Saul putting it on my list. But I'm not a huge fan of Curse of Chucky. If it was Cult, like if it worked out to be Cult of Chucky or Seed of Chucky, either one of those would have made my mm-hmm. list. But Curse, eh, it was fine. Back to basics, but, uh, you know, it didn't quite make it. But anyway, my number three is kind of uh, a little bit of a stretch, but I put Alien Covenant. Um, and the reason that works out to be Why that is way. That a stretch? Holy shit, I totally forgot about that. That is the sixth film in that fucking series. If you don't count the crossover AVP, movies. no, AVP, no, AVP doesn't count. Um, because they're, they're separate. They're standalone crossovers. They're, yeah. Which, shit. honestly, the, the Damn Paul W.S. Anderson AVP isn't even that bad. I don't hate that one. The Requiem ones suck, but I didn't count those, so I just counted the mainline aliens. So Covenant, you know, not all the Aliens movies are hard. You know, definitely the first one is. Definitely, I have I um, have Alien in my horror collection. Yeah, so I mean, my horror is separate from my other, from my other, you know, main collection, and I have I've always kept Alien in the horror section. Right. Even though I even though I put Predator in the regular, like everything else, but I don't know, it's weird. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, but, uh, you know, to me, Covenant is a horror movie. I mean, that's essentially it what it's going for, you know, like uh, like you said with Curse of Chucky, back, back to basics with this one, just an alien uh, on the spaceship. You know, I was disappointed. I was a huge fan of Prometheus. I actually really liked it. I know that movie got a lot of hate. I was a mm. little disappointed with uh, where they took with Covenant, but then the movie was good, so I enjoyed it. So I wasn't, you know, super disappointed with it uh, that Newbie Rapace wasn't back, but... Uh, I enjoy Covenant. Um, had a good cast. 
um, had some good kills in there, had some uh, cool stuff with the spaceship and like the whole crane thing and the alien. So it was a good mm-hmm. movie. Solid one. Easily made my list uh, as far as the six movies go. Yeah. So I'm going to go on record now and change my number five. I'm going to get rid of Halloween Curse of Michael Myers. Yes, the producer's cut. It's gone. And Alien Covenant has now made its way onto my list because I I overlooked that one. Good on you, Corey. All right. So my number two is Saw Saw 6. Saw 6 is my second favorite film of the franchise. And uh, yeah, one that I think is damn good for a sixth entry of a of a series that at you know give them all the credit in the world for consistency and maintaining that fucking plot for all those films um yeah i I, after the fucking whatever you want to consider part five because part five is my least favorite of the series just after coming off of that movie like, I was expecting just whatever. But what I got was, holy shit, this is really fucking good. And, uh, yeah. So, it's all six. My number two. How about you? So, I had to put this as my number two. I acknowledge this isn't a good movie. Uh, but, like I said, Freddy's my favorite. So, my number two has to be Nightmare on Elm Street 6, Freddy's Dead. Um, you know, this movie is not a horror movie in any sense. It's really just the Freddy show. You know, Freddy shows up as the Wicked Witch. You know they um, all can't be winners, Corey. You didn't have to put this on here because you're a fan of Freddy. <laughs> no, I, but I genuinely enjoy the movie. Like, I, okay. I've watched I it a bunch of times. Right. I laugh when fucking Robert England is, you know, dressed up as Freddy doing the Wicked Witch, Wiley <laughs> Coyote. Um, you know, nice hearing from you, Carlos. Like, it has some uh, good kills huh? in it. You know, like, I like the whole video game thing, even though it's fucking silly. Um, and not scary at all. I like the video game thing. Like, be like me, be like me. Like, I, you know, I always yeah. enjoy the movie. Like, I'm not just putting it on there because I like Freddy. Like, I legitimately get enjoyment from it. Uh, the ending is like, nah. You know, like, they blow him up with a pipe bomb. Like, ooh, <laughs> Freddy's dead after that. Kids. Like, Yeah, like, I was a little disappointed, uh, you know, with the ending. Like, that's what's supposed to kill him. Because at that point, they were saying, you know, that was going to be it. Uh and then, you know, I didn't mind the whole thing of, like, she's his daughter, you know, in the movie. I didn't mind that. You know, it's silly. It had Roseanne uh, and fucking Tom Arnold in, in the... Uh, random cameo ever. Yeah. And then, uh, like, I remember, like, the crazy teacher, and he's like, in 1422, Freddy sailed the sea blue or whatever. Like, he's just like, yeah. just crazy fucking teacher. I don't know. I, I just enjoy that movie. Not on a horror movie basis, necessarily, but just... As a fan of the franchise, I get enjoyment watching uh, Robert England chew the shit out of that scenery in that movie. I think he says something like 1492, Freddy sailed across the blue. I think it's what he says. I don't know. I'm not trying to quote that movie right now. So, number one for me is this Jason Lives. I mean, duh. <laughs> I'm sure it's yours too. So, yeah, of course, this one has to be it because, you know, this is one where it I legitimately view it as one of the best of the series, which yeah, can't say that for a lot of films. Like, no. you know, the sixth one is legitimately one of the best. So yeah. it had to be at the top of the list, this one. Yep. All right. 
Alright then, let's uh dive in, shall we? <laughs> So, uh, brief background, little tidbit here. Uh, Tom McLaughlin was originally only hired to write the film, but producer Don Berms pushed for him to uh, be allowed to direct as well. Berms later said that the studio would otherwise have probably rehired Friday the 13th, a new beginning director, Danny Steinman, who he refused to work with again following their poor previous working relationship on the 1980 film The Unseen. Um, series producer Frank Mancuso Jr. was a huge David Bowie fan and I'm sure a lot of Friday the 13th fans know this one already and know where I'm going with this and a lot of the sequels went into production with these various shooting titles beginning with the third film in order to keep the film's storyline a secret the production was given the fake title Aladdin Sane both as a pun Aladdin insane referencing the storyline of a mental patient pursued by a killer and in keeping with the series tradition of using david bowie's song album titles as fake names an lp of of bowie's aladdin sane can be seen on the table in the girl's cabin approximately 33 minutes into the movie so the if you're curious as to what the titles were part three went into production under crystal japan Part four did not have a Bowie song, uh, a Bowie name. Part five was repetition, and of course, this one, Aladdin Sane. Uh, Tom McLaughlin also wanted to start with a classic Gothic opening to try and hit the ground running because he had this deep love and admiration for Hammer Horror, and you know those f- those films fueled his desire to open with Moonlight and Fog, which. I fucking love, and we'll get into that in just a second. Uh, the film was originally titled, this is from the script itself, when uh, he first wrote the first draft, Tom McLaughlin, because did I forget to mention he also direct, uh, also wrote this movie? He did. Uh, and the original title was Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Has Risen. The producers at Paramount had one goal and one goal only when they greenlit this film, and that was to get Jason back basics bring him back the actual jason they needed to after the fifth one because uh i think you said it but the fifth one is my least favorite as well in the franchise you know it it, it's awful i've seen it like twice i I watched it a while back when i was re-watching them all and that was it Uh, i was done after that yeah it's it's not a good movie i mean i've seen it a handful of times but it's not one that i like um Filming of this film lasted 40 days, and at in uh, and at 86 minutes long, it's the shortest film of the series. Uh, the characters, speaking of Part Five, Reggie and Pam, uh, they were supposed to come back, but Shavar Ross, who played uh, Reggie, he backed out after he was supposed to be killed off in the script. Um, and as for what happened to Pam, uh. We'll find that out in a little bit. I have notes on her. Producer Don Berms also cla- he often clashed with Tom McLaughlin over nickels and dimes. The guy he wanted to direct the film, he basically brought him on, essentially to push him around because 
he apparently, well, not apparently, he actually did. I looked it up. He liked to push his weight around saying, I worked on Halloween and Carpenter's the Fog. And he had a deadline to meet. And if he met that deadline, he got a bonus. So, that's, to me, this is just my assumption. That's the reason he bought McLaughlin on. He, he saw what he was, you know, just as the sole writer. And he's like, well, let me just bring this guy on. If he's writing, he might as well direct it. And I might as well just look over his shoulder and make sure this shit gets done the way I want it to. Because on the, the uh, Crystal Lake Memories documentary, when they talk about this guy, uh, he's a real piece of work, by the way, from the sounds of it all. Uh, McLaughlin would say, like, he would say one day, there'd be days he'd put in requests for like you know a crane for a crane shot the next day and whatnot and stuff like that and he'd show up one set and nothing would be there and he'd look around and be like where's the crane that i ordered and it's like uh talk to dom and dom was just like nah you don't need that sorry got a budget to stay under <laughs> you don't need these kids your gadgets yeah exactly so you know overall production it seemed like a hassle for the people who were actually involved with the actual filmmaking process, i.e. Tom McLaughlin. Uh, but for everybody else, um, and I'll even insert Tom into this part as well, because you know, even he admitted, talking to him last year, that, uh, like I was getting ready to say, it was a blast. It was fun. A lot of people, a lot of the actors you know, had a fun time uh, making this movie. And McLaughlin has good memories of it, you know, through through all the headaches and BS behind the scenes, he has fond memories of making this movie, and he should. Um, so, let's talk about it. Uh, we're going to open on a different note than what you'd expect from a Friday the 13th film. We get an eerie yet familiar score playing while, while uh, like we said, shots of fog, moonlight, uh, and then we see... Aerial, aerial shots of what looks like thunderclouds coming in. Looks like a storm is about to roll over Crystal Lake. We see a dog eating a carcass in the middle of the road when then Tommy speeds by in his truck along with his buddy Halls, who's played by Ron Palio, a.k.a. Warshack from Welcome Back, Cotter. Uh, Welcome Back, Cotter with John Travolta. <laughs> remember that Remember that name. More on that in a minute. Um, they're heading to the cemetery because Tommy's been released from the insane asylum and now he wants to make sure Jason's really dead. So he's somehow got Jason's mask with him, complete with the axe mark in the top right corner that just magically appears and all. Unless we're to believe that this is the same mask from part four, only wider. I don't, I don't know. The whole mask... You got a comment on this, this whole mask thing? Because we see he's bringing the mask with him, but I'm like, is he bringing a mask or is it the mask? And if it's the mask, (laughs) I I have questions. I just have questions overall about this part. I don't know. I just like to imagine that Tommy's like, I'm going to go fucking dig him up and kill him. I got to take the mask with me. All right, well, this don't look right. It had the fucking axe part, and he's like making it to look just like the... hold this down. (laughs) Takes an axe to it. There we go. Perfection. I just like to imagine that. But, you know, it, in the grand scheme of things, 
this movie's not taking itself too seriously. So, you know, no. I can forgive that. I mean, this whole premise of like him going to dig it up is ridiculous. Dig Jason up is ridiculous as it is. So I, you know, it, that shit don't bother me. It, it is what it is. It gets Jason back with the fucking mask. It's a what way to get Jason back. Exactly. So the blue pickup truck that we see Tommy roll in and roll in on is the same blue pickup truck that Pam drives in part five. And uh, about Tommy himself, after being a born-again Christian, the actor who played him in Part 5, John Shepard, declined to come back. Um, Obviously, the whole religious thing. And eventually, the role went to Tom Matthews, who got the role after the casting director, Fern Champion, saw him in, what else? Return of the Living Dead. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like the two movies everybody knows him from, Return of the Living Dead and this. I, I mean, I know yeah. he's in other stuff, but. And this, you know, now that I'm actually bringing her up by name, this Fern Champion, so she, like I said, she's the uh, casting director of this film, and I believe she also casted, I know she casted part four as well, but I think she did five. I think she did four, five, and six. Um, Maybe more, but I don't know. I know parts four and six for sure, 100%. Anyway, she pops up on the documentary from time to time, and like she's got like so many Corey Feldman stories from the fourth uh, film, and uh, I'm just sure she has many more that were not told on that documentary. Um, buddies, uh, fellow buddy podcast, whatever you want to call them, fellow podcasters, the good, the bad, and the sequel. Shout out! Uh, they actually interviewed her for their uh, Friday Part 4 episode. Because their whole gimmick is, you know, obviously they do nothing but sequels, but when they do an episode, they make sure they have uh, a guest to to coincide with that episode, whether it be um, an actor from the film or someone who was, you know, someone who played a hand in it. In this case, Fern, you know, casted the movie. So... You know, she was responsible for bringing on people like Corey Feldman and Crispin Glover and stuff like that. So I'm sure she had a lot of cool stories. So uh, check that out when you guys can. And uh, yeah, once again, shout out. Good to bad in the sequel. Um, and one more tidbit here before we move on. Melanie Kidman. I'm sorry. Melanie Kinneman, who was uh, Pam in the last film. Like I said, she signed on the band this. There was a sequel clause in the contract. However, the producers decided to go in a different direction for the film after John Shepard backed out. So she says that the producers called her and said that her role intertwined, according to her, on the uh, documentary. So that's that. So at the cemetery, the, the two, Tommy and Hawes, they're awarded with Jason's grave for completing the Eternal Peace Cemetery maze. Tommy begins digging up uh, the the grave and eventually reaches the coffin and pries it open with a crowbar. And then this is when I'm really noticing uh, Harry Manfredini's updated gothic score. And I'm fucking loving it. Uh, more on that a little later on. So, you know, Tommy gets down, gets the crowbar, pries it open, and we see just this cobweb maggot infested body you don't even see what Jason looks like you just see a shell of him because it's just covered in 
shit and maggots and everything because he's been down there for I mean this movie gives you the impression that he's been down there for like decades but I mean Tom we're going by age here I mean I don't know this the whole thing about time in this fucking series it it, sometimes I I think that the writers or, or, or producers just don't really stop to think or they didn't stop to think about time I mean you think about how two three and four take place days after each other and then the the gap between four and this who knows how long it is I mean I guess the only thing we have to go by is Tommy's age so you gotta think he was probably like Tommy was what do you think 11 or 12 in part four how do you think how old do you think Feldman was around that age 11 or 12 yeah like a tween yeah I would say that's about right and Tom here looks like he's about 22, 23, maybe. Yeah, so it's like probably a decade. Yeah, it's one thing. It's like 15 years or so, give or take. Yeah. No, maybe, maybe, I don't know, less than that. Like about a decade, you were right. Maybe a decade, but it's just funny because, you know, as a kid, I never even realized that this was the same character. I mean, obviously, I know it's the same name, but I guess I didn't pick up on it at first, not until I was a little ah, bit older. Okay. And I think it was just because, A, they're all played by different actors. Like, yeah. you know, each movie, it's recast. So to me, like, oh, it's different, different person. It's, it's like um, Jason. Yeah. And then, you know, the other part, like you said, it's just the first four take place so close together. And then you get this weird gap in between. So, yeah, I never even realized. <laughs> but, yeah, I appreciate the whole the way Jason looks. I, you know, it might not be decomposed that much but the whole point is he's fucking dead his ass is in the ground and getting eaten by maggots so i appreciate that yeah he's not i mean he's not decomposing or anything he's just there and anyway um a stupid tidbit when tommy goes to open up jason's casket the hands aren't tom matthews they actually belong to tom mclaughlin um and more on that in a little bit as to why so, Tommy takes a broken rod and starts aggressively stabbing Jason with it. Then he uh, tosses the mask into the grave and tells Jason to go fuck himself. Then suddenly we get lightning striking down on the rod that Tommy left inside of Jason conveniently, resurrecting him like Frankenstein's monster. Hello. But yeah, that's that's what Tom McLaughlin was going for. He chose to go the old Frankenstein direction uh, just as a way to bring Jason back from the dead. Like, you know, whether you choose to accept it or not, he says. Yeah. So. I, I'm okay with it. You know, when I was a kid. I think it's I, brilliant. I love it. It's the best resurrection, like, you can think of. And I love it. What makes it even better is, like I just said, like what McLaughlin was going for and knowing that. Because it's genius, you know? Why not yeah. pay homage? The best way to pay homage. And he does it in numerous ways, which, again, we're going to get into. Sorry, what were you going to say? No, I was just going to say, as a kid, I was like, oh, this is silly. I was like, yeah, lightning strikes. But as a kid, right. I was like, this is a serious horror movie. Right. You know, so uh, older me knows that, obviously, Tom McLaughlin knows this is the sixth one. We need to bring him back. Let's just bring him back in an over-the-top way, like you said, that pays homage so, you know, I, I'm totally fine with it because, like, there's a few ways you can do it. Like, some movies, sequels, just ignore shit from the previous movie and, mm-hmm. like, would just bring Jason back, which I think is stupid. That's always bothered me. Whether it's silly or not, how you bring him back, just 
keep continuity, you know, like he's dead. So let's bring him back. Let's bring him back in this over the top way. So I appreciate it. I, you know, I, I like it now. Yeah. So we see Jason's eyes are centered on Tommy. I love this effect. Cause like, he's just staring at Tommy and like, you're not quite sure when he's going to strike. Cause Tommy's just on top of him fucking around. Like he's just, you know, get trying to get, you know, the prop. He's trying to pry the pole off of him. And then, He's, like, dicking around with matches or whatever. He's just fumbling around, it seems like, forever. And finally, he goes to get... He takes his gloves off, too. And when he goes to get out, that's when Jason strikes and uh, scares the shit out of him. Tommy tries as quickly as possible to douse Jason with gasoline and then light him on fire with the match. Foolproof plan there, guy. When it conveniently fucking starts to rain on everything, I love it, including Tommy's grand plan. Hollis tries attacking J-Man with a shovel but gets his heart literally punched out of him for the trouble. And then afterwards, I don't know if you noticed this, noticed this or not, but you can hear Jason drop his heart and step on it if you put, if you listen to the audio close enough. I don't know if you had your headphones on watching this or, or not. Yeah, I, I don't know if I picked up on that, but you know, I, I just appreciate like Jason's back and he's not fucking around. Like he just punches through him, like yeah. <laughs> pulls his heart out. And I like the whole, you know, just comedy bit with the rain. Like it is funny. Like Tommy's like, I don't it's know, light funny. your ass up. And then, Cause he's just standing there. Like the way Jason's standing there looking at him and like Tommy's like, Oh shit. <laughs> and then you see it actually centers on like it zeroes in on the maggots falling off of him. It's like, Oh shit. Here we go. Um, yeah, uh, and afterwards, we see Hall's body fall into Jason's coffin, and the door closes shut. It's like, ah, the old switcheroonie. So, Tom McLaughlin, um, he took on some props from the film, let's just say that, including this here tombstone of Jason's, which sits outside his house, made to look like Jason is buried in his yard, and his casket, which sits in his garage. Now, there's a, there's an extra feature on the collection where he's just giving a tour and shit like that, but he actually showed us yet uh, last year and it's pretty cool. Uh, I think it's just the coolest thing that this dude still keeps this coffin and it's he has no intentions of getting rid of it. Um, so Tommy takes off, leaving Jason to put on his mask and give us the most badass slash bizarre fucking intro ever this cheeky james bond nod <laughs> you see jason just walk across and stuff because the the camera like closes in on his eye and then through his pupil you see jason walk and then stops dead center and slashes on instead of james bond shooting he just slashes and blood squirts and it just says jason lives and then friday the 13th and then we get our traditional Friday the 13th credits with Manfredini's score playing over a black background with just text popping up showing who's in the movie and uh, you know I just want to say I love the opening you know the opening credit like with Jason slashing I I just think it's so funny it's like you know you're parroting another um, you know long running franchise with a bunch of sequels Mm-hmm. I just love the fact that Jason walks across because, like I said, when I was young watching this, like I was probably like 
five or whatever when I first saw this movie. Yeah. So I didn't know what it was even like referring to. And then when I was a little bit older, I was like, that's fucking James Bond. Like, why is he pulling that shit? I just started laughing because it's just yeah. hilarious. Uh, you know, it's just very odd. Like, I don't know where they pulled that one from, but I, I appreciate it. Like, he just fucking slashes in the blood. Yeah, I, I love like right there. If you can't tell what type of movie you're in for, uh, then you're not paying attention. <laughs> like, it's just this movie is just there to be funny and have a good time. And that's exactly what it is so far. A hundred percent, dude. I could not agree more with you. Uh, It's just so tongue in cheek. It it, quote here. It was something that was going to be not just another Jason movie, but a kind of homage to the other slasher films, as well as kind of a satirization, uh, satirization of them at the same time. It was McLaughlin who wanted to have fun with the series and obviously his idea to do this. So like I said, we get the opening credits and then we follow Tommy who's rushing to the jail so he can piss off Sheriff Garris and his deputy Rick, David Kagan and Vincent Guastafaro. So (laughs) the one thing I always take from this scene is after he pisses off the sheriff and deputy and gets thrown into the jail cell. As he's getting pulled into the jail cell, there's this terribly fucking obvious ADR with Tommy. You hear, it's just, I don't know, I've always picked up on it for whatever reason. It's just so obvious, this ADR with him just yelling that you gotta go check the grave, you gotta go see it, it's not, it's, 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 you know, Jason's not there or whatever. <laughs> um, it stood out to me too. I was like, okay. oh man, this is bad ADR right here. That's it, though. It's just, you know, come on. Five seconds out of the rest of the movie. You know, they all can't be winners. So, uh, then we get treated to Lizbeth and Darren's deaths. This is uh, Nancy McLaughlin. This is Tom McLaughlin's wife at the time. And Tony Goldwyn and his film debut. So, uh, they come in in her little punch buggy. And they just see Jason. Now, prior to this, we actually do see Jason just power walking through the woods and actually we're going to go we're, we're going to eventually see that often throughout this movie it's just shots of Jason power walking through the woods by himself like doo, doo, doo. and we see him with this right he's got the rod now that Tommy brought him back with now he's got this as his weapon of choice uh, not to mention he's gained a utility belt since the fourth film not sure <laughs> where it came from but he's now gained a fucking utility belt. Hey, this is a practical Jason. He's like, I'm going to carry around a machete and all this shit. I'm gonna, yes. I need a belt. He's even got a hoarder for that too. It's it's great. So he's walking and they eventually find him. They're driving. It's nighttime. They're going through this dark wood road path, whatever you want to call it. And eventually Jason stops them. And all of a sudden, uh, Tony Goldwyn walks or reaches for the glove compartment and he's got a gun in there. She's like, you ain't dirty, Harry. What are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And he goes, and he's like, I'm going to make him get out of the way. So he gets out and like, he's, you can tell he's nervous as shit. And again, it's Tony Goldwyn's first movie. We're going to scare him. We're going to scare him. That's right. Just drive towards him. He'll move. Nobody wants to die. Well, that's a freaking fact, least of all us. Will you just drive? He'll get out of our way. Yeah, 
That really scared the shit out of me. <sighs> That's it. We're driving this baby back to town in reverse. The hell we are. Where'd you get that? Don't worry about it. Just stay cool. Stay cool? You ain't dirty hairy. Now stop it. All right, scumbag. Get out of the road. Now. Darren, get back in here right now. He'll kill you. And if I get him first... You big Tony Goldwyn fan, Corey? Uh, I mean, the main thing I remember him from is Ghost. Ghost? I, I, yeah. I know he's had a um, career after that, but yeah, the main thing I always think of is uh, Carl from Ghost. Ghost? I think he was the president on that show, Scandal, or whatever it was, on ABC for like ever that Kerry Washington show and shit um but yeah he's been in a bunch of stuff he was in that last house on the left remake and uh I, 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 again so many things can't remember one thing so moving right along uh she gets uh oh yeah he gets impaled and tossed over him like he just gets flung overhead like 20 feet in the air it's great and then she ducks as he throws the rod through the windshield, which, funny enough, uh, Nancy McLaughlin actually last year on the watch along confirmed that he narrowly just nearly missed her. Like, I guess CJ missed his mark or something. I don't know what caused it, but, like, her ducking down and, like, all that is, like, 100% genuine. Like, she just barely fucking, like, missed you know, getting hit with this rod. So, yeah, crazy. You know, you know, film sets back in the day, man. You had to take chances. And like I said, Nancy McLaughlin was uh, Tom McLaughlin's wife. They're no longer married, for those of you curious. So the following morning, we have Tommy waking up in his jail cell to uh, Sheriff, uh, his daughter Megan and company looking for Paula. See, this girl Elizabeth, who just died, this other counselor who we're going to see throughout the rest of the movie, Paula. That's her sister. Fun fact, I've seen this movie dozens of times. I was today years old when I learned that the Elizabeth character was Paula's sister. Never knew that. Never picked up on that a single fucking time until today. So yeah, that happened. Um, and uh, yeah, the sheriff is like, we can do what we can do. It's, you know, for some reason... It's just me and Rick here, and other people show up when it's convenient. So, it's, we also find out, um, oh yeah, also Elizabeth and Darren, the ones who just got killed, they, uh, they're pretty important people, hence the reason all these kids are at the, the jail for, you know, trying to get the sheriff to do something about it, because they're in charge of organizing the camp program. This is, <laughs> I so, know, yeah, ain't that a bitch? Like, they were the ones in charge. Uh, and uh, just going back to the kill real quick, I just love, like, when they pull up or try to pull away and Jason just fucking stabs their tire. Like, I just yeah, love that shit. Yeah. He's like, fuck you, you ain't going anywhere. Nope. <laughs> I didn't, didn't know we brought that up. But yeah, fuck uh, no. basically the kids are like, or the counselor, teen counselors are like, oh shit, 
Like <laughs> all these kids yeah. are coming and we got no leadership. They're kind of a big deal. So also Camp Crystal Lake is now referred to as Camp Blood by the locals and the area itself is now called Camp Forest Green. So let's uh talk about um Tom Fridley. I think I refer I think I pronounced it Friday earlier. Fridley. Tom Fridley who plays court. He's a yeah, a real life nephew of a John Travolta. I told you we would bring that guy back into the mix later on in the episode. Here he is. Yeah, it's why if he kind of looks like his uncle from Welcome Back, Cotter, it's because he's his nephew. So the the connection is his mother is John's oldest sister, Ellen. Fun fact, I actually briefly seen slash talked to Ellen who made a little appearance for a few minutes in the uh, watch-along last year, which was pretty fun. I was like, holy shit. This is John Travolta's oldest sister. This is pretty wild. So, yeah. Um, And Megan, the daughter of the sheriff, the actress who plays her is Jennifer Cook, who is, um, she was cast after being seen on the miniseries V, along with producer Mancuso's Hitchcock tradition of casting the pretty blonde as the heroine. McLaughlin also wanted someone with a 30s or 40s sort of snappy attitude, like uh, Barbara Stanwyck. Um, and also, I read that after this movie, she retired from acting. But she's, and it's not like she went MIA. They they were man. They they were able to get her for the Camp Crystal Lake Memories documentary, both the coffee table book which I own and the documentary itself, which I own. So, which. For those who are curious, the two percent who are, they're two separate projects. Because Camp Crystal Lake Memories started off as the coffee book, which came out back in two thousand eight. That's because I actually pre-ordered that bitch. I got that the day it came out through Amazon, and then I want to say two thousand twelve is when Crystal Lake Memories, the documentary, came out, which is. I think that fucking documentary is seven and a half hours long or something. It's the it's longest long documentary shit. ever. Yeah, I I I've watched it. I, I think it's I heard it, it too. It's yeah, worth it. Yeah, it was good. But I knew about the book. I didn't know it was separate. I just always assumed it was this, like intertwined. No, nah, the, they were separate. No, nah, they they were projects that were like three or four years apart. The book came out in two thousand eight. The documentary was released in twenty twelve. So, the more you know. And then we cut to the cemetery caretaker. Yeah, the cemetery caretaker. I knew I'd get it out. Who's uh, drinking on the job because it's the 80s and you're old and why not? And he's complaining to himself after he finds Jason's grave dug up. So he tries to cover it up. He's reburying it, saying that he's not going to let the kids and their pranks ruin his reputation. He says that they couldn't even bury him right because we see Hall's foot fucking just sticking out of the corner. <laughs> so you can't I even know. bury him right. Uh, and then this is the first example of McLaughlin's re- like referential humor with uh, the caretaker breaking the fourth wall and telling us that some people have a strange sense of humor. And we're going to see sh- kooky shit like this like throughout the movie. This is the first time we actually see it specifically. 
Oh, yeah. I, I just remember as a kid not getting any of this, and I was like, who's he talking to? Like, <laughs> it's like, what is it? What is this? You know, I had no concept of, like, breaking the fourth wall uh, when I was five, <laughs> you know? So, like yeah. I said, I, I, all this was just over my head. All that shit went over. You stole the words right from my mouth. God damn you, man. I love it. Um, Real quick, too. Let's, let's hop back to the mask randomly for some reason I'm just thinking about Jason's mask in this movie as I'm talking about it and uh, you know it's the mask they got everything alright the holes are all aligned they even got the fucking axe mark even the, regardless of which version of this mask if you, even if it is an original I don't know whatever what I'm getting at is I don't like how this mask is just wide. This is like a really round and wide mask. Have you ever? I've always felt that way about this version's mask, and it's always bugged me. It's like the widest mask of all the masks in the series, and I know why they did it because apparently C.J. Graham has a big head, and I've met the dude before. <laughs> he does have a big head, and they they molded it to his head. So I mean, I get why, but still, come on. Yeah, I don't know. It it doesn't look odd to me. It looks fine. You know, I okay. I'm sure, like, if I had a picture of like all the masks, you know, on Jason back to back to back, it right. might look wide. But just watching it, you know, I, I'm cool with it as long as it's not like the fifth one's mask where it's like just different or whatever. You know, I, I'm cool with it. At least they try to keep it consistent. But it's got the blue marks, not the red ones. The blue ones on that mask. So, anyway, uh, the kids arrive at camp, and then we cut back to the woods where there's this random company executive paintball game going on. <laughs> um, so, we first see, um, let's just go kill by kill, I guess. So, the first is this, this misogynistic fucking guy with a dead bandana wrapped around, or, yeah, just a headband that says dead, uh, Apparently he's been shot. We see on his chest he's got two paintball marks, which indicates he's pissed off because I'm assuming the big, tall, big bird-looking chick that we're going to see in a little bit killed him. And, you know, he's saying women belong in the kitchen. You know, real fucking cruddy shit. (laughs) And just, whatever, dude. You do you. And he's just hacking along with his machete. And this is where Jason gets the machete in this movie because as he's pulling back to hack at the the bushes, uh, Jason grabs his arm and whips him into a tree, taking his (laughs) arm off. And he's face first into... Let's talk about the fucking smiley face that's embedded in this tree. Um, Uh... I've seen this movie, like I said, dozens, dozens. I'm probably going to say the same thing a couple more times about this episode. I don't mean to repeat myself, sorry. Uh, but yeah, as many times as I've seen this movie, I still do not understand the fucking smiley face mark in the tree. Is that supposed to be a have a nice day, 80s referential uh, joke that yeah, I've I... always seen in my face, but I've never understood? The only thing I could venture a guess is like maybe the tree's happy because he had the machete <laughs> before and he was hacking shit up and now he's dead. Who knows, dude? I don't know. It It's loose, but I just love this part because like when Jason rips his fucking arm off, he, Jason just looks down. He's like, oh, fuck. He's I just wanted made. the machete. I got yes. his arm. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that up. I'm, oh, yes. Because exactly. Because Liz, look, he got with the resurrection with the lightning bolt and everything that 
Def- that, that definitely gave the dude powers. And this is the first time Jason's actually seen these powers on display. And even he's amazed by it. Like, he's like, holy shit, I can do this now. Like, that, because it looks like he's doing nothing. And it just, you know. And yeah, you're right, that look that he has. He just looks at the arm with the machete. That you still hold the machete. It's a cute touch. And he just looks at it like, huh? Okay. It's great, you know. Um, his reaction, you know, Jason's reactions in these later films are, are just gold. Um, so after that, we get these two, I guess they're twins, and this, and, and again, this big bird-looking chick who, game's over, she kills them. Yeah, the two guys are talking about, you know, being hungry or something. She pops up, shoots them both, game's over, apparently. So they're calling for everyone else to come out. No one's coming out. Meanwhile, we got this. I don't even know what to call this guy. This dude with the fucking glasses over the glasses. The glasses over the goggles. The goggles over the glasses, dude. Who's just like fumbling around. Loses his gun. Then the next scene, he has the gun back. And he's just kind of like hiding behind trees. And he's just a klutz. We get it, dude. We get it, guy. And these three are walking, and then, what the fuck is Jason doing, hanging out in a tree, before he jumps down, for this triple decapitation, because he clearly jumps down, in front of them, and slices them, cuts their heads off, with one fell swoop, but, my question, because I gotta ask these things, is, why is Jason in a tree, and what is he doing up there, (laughs) yeah, I have no idea, I don't know, if he was like, can you imagine Jason, just up in the tree, first off, like, Shh, yeah, I'm hunting victims. Maybe he's looking for like his old shack from like the second one. He's like, I'm looking for my shack. You can get oh, a better shit, view from it? up here. <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> that's just what I like to think. But yeah, I the other thing I like in this scene is just the fucking bandanas that say dead. Uh, yeah, it's just yeah. like another just like little joke that's in there. Uh, you know, for anybody who's watching for all these like little uh, tongue in cheek moments. Uh-huh. You know, it's just funny shit. Yeah, so the triple decapitation, uh, you know, obviously cuts away, and people are probably thinking, oh, the MPA. Well, yes and no. Um, it involved the rig, and I guess you probably understand where I'm going with this. The rig only works in so many ways, and um, apparently, I've heard that the MPA cut it anyway after the rig device, where you actually were able to see. After the machete went through the fake head, this rig would pop the head off. So you were able to see all three heads pop off on impact. But that never happened. We never saw it that way. And from what I've heard is because the rig was malfunctioning. I've also heard that the camera picked up the rig. And I've heard that the MPA forced them to cut it. So I don't I don't know. It all depends on who you're talking to. Um, and this is a good part to bring up Jason because these scenes with Jason just power walking through the woods, random shots of him, stuff like that. Uh, even this scene here at the paintballers, that's not C.J. Graham. If the build to this Jason looks different than what you're used to throughout the film, you're not wrong. So stuntman crew member Dan Bradley played Jason for the first day of shooting, which is why Jason's build in the paintball scenes are different. This is also why 
Jason's eye color changes during the film. Not that we were ever really treated to an up-close look at his eyes, but that's what the notes that I got said. Paramount had uh, seen the first day's rushes and asked that Jason be recasted right away, feeling that Bradley looked too bulky for the role. That was a that was them being kind. He was too fat. Therefore, Graham <laughs> was given the part. <laughs> like, Jason needs to go on a diet right now. <laughs> yeah. Because apparently someone questioned, like, you know, Jason's been dead as a zombie for all these years, you know, in that casket. How did he pick up all this weight? Again, it just didn't make sense. Did not add up. Put a cut-in scene where he's, like, at White Castle just pounding burgers or some shit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Tommy's being escorted out of town by Rick and Garrus, but on the way, Tommy makes a U-turn, a little detour, <laughs> back to the cemetery, causing Garrus and Rick to hit the noise in the cherries as the cemetery, as the cemetery, sorry, we, uh, see him leading them on this goofy-ass Looney Tunes chase that ends with them being tackled, or them tackling him, rather, at the, uh, gravesite that's been filled back up by the caretaker who then denies any accusations. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't do such a thing. I didn't. You got to get up. Dig it up. What does he think I am? A fart head? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to reenact that scene. But I love that transition, dude. That's another example of the, the humor. Like, you, you had the caretaker ask the questions. They think he's a fart head. He's, again breaking the fourth wall asking the audience that and then the, the film cuts to the kids screaming yeah at the camp because again the kids are there now actual kids this is a franchise I first I know I that's what I've always appreciated about this movie uh, you know is it's actually a camp with fucking kids like all the other movies like you know I think most people would be shocked to hear that like which movie uh, has the kids in it. Oh, the sixth one. Like, it, it, I think everybody would just be surprised that it took till six to actually have kids at the camp. I mean, when you think about it, because the first four take place so close together, it makes sense. But either way, it's nice to actually have kids in a fucking camp in this movie. Um. So yeah, Garrison Rick dropped Tommy out of town. And then um, we get the caretaker who's walking home at, at night, or I'm assuming he's going home. He's just walking through the woods at night, and he's, you know, kissing the bottle. Kathleen, you led me astray. And he tosses the bottle back, but of course it doesn't doesn't hear anything, doesn't hear it land, but that's because Jason caught it. You see Jason break it and stab him in the neck, and then, you know, that it's like a two-for-one combo because then we get this couple that are like newly engaged having a late night picnic yes they're having a picnic at night and uh, yeah homeboy goes and he sees Jason hacking at the caretaker's body and then Jason just like stops mid cut and looks over and looks looks at the guy like like he knew he was there the entire time so that chase ensues and she gets they both you know he pulls her away and they get onto the bike and double impalement so, these two were just throwaway death scenes. Literally, like the meaning of, the, of every, the, the, the very definition of, of that. Like, they were shot after filming had been completed. They were added in because, you know, the producers, they wanted more kills. 
Plus also, the movie's short as shit anyway, so they're yeah. probably like, we just need a few more minutes here. They added uh, the, the, these death scenes. Uh, a lot of close-up shots were also added in post or in during reshoots. Um, the death of Sissy is uh, actually shown because in the original cut, she's just pulled out of the window. But in the uh, the reshoots, they added the whole twist with her head coming off and all that shit. So, yeah, this was one of them, the, the caretaker and these two random people's death scenes um, just added in last minute. Uh, then we get some close-up shots of the kids at camp sleeping, and one of the little girls is asleep. She fell asleep reading Jean-Paul Sartre's No Exit. You know what that is? No, no, I never picked that one up. It's a book about hell. <laughs> it's a very famous book about hell. Um, so Sissy, like I was just trying to struggle to find out what her name was. I couldn't remember. But again, why the hell does this movie have two characters who are the same variant of the name Elizabeth? Two, two names. Because you got Elizabeth and you got Sissy. But they're both variants of the name Elizabeth. It just it, it throws me off. I don't know. Um, they she wants to show Paula how to play Camp Blood with the cards. With uh, you hear one of the girls scream, so they rush to go check her out. Her name is Nancy, and she says that she saw a monster who was everywhere, and he was real. So they calm her down and convince her to go back to bed. Then question where Court is. So. This camp, this camp blood game. You ever played this or wondered what it's how to play it? Nah, never really thought that much into it. Nah, not. I know you're a card guy. It's it's stupid. It's you can Google it. It's just a. It's basically just a game of luck and a game of war, which is also a game of luck when you're playing cards. So. <laughs> I'm thinking about playing anything. I'm thinking about playing the uh, fucking Friday 13th NES game that we used to play and try to fucking uh, fight um, Jason like Mike Tyson. Fuck yeah. Punch out. That's right. <laughs> purple Jason. Yeah, Purple Jason. So then we cut to Court, who's uh, in an RV with this girl, Nikki, just having sex. Having sex with her clothes on. This. Yeah, no nudity. Uh, I was surprised by that. Well, you know, uh, this is the first and only film in the series that did not have any nudity, although we had this sex scene. So, uh, reportedly, Tom McLaughlin wanted to have Darcy DeMoss, who plays Nikki, uh, he approached her about being topless in her scene, but she refused. Uh, but admitted later that he felt uncomfortable about suggesting that you know, such a thing, but had tried to appease his producers, who felt that the uh, hardcore audience had come to expect it. It is the lowest earning film in the franchise, uh, although the two factors aren't likely connected. The the fact that the, I've always noticed this film as the one without nudity, by the way, <laughs> and you know, it doesn't matter to me. My my two cents on it, my opinion, my reaction is, I really don't have one, okay? Cool, no boobies. Ooh, 
you know. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't bother me, but uh, you know, I just I didn't even realize it didn't have nudity until I was watching it. I was like, oh wow, because like yeah. literally every other one does. <laughs> and after the nun having sex, and she gets up, and Court sits up, like you can actually hear him pulling the condom off. <laughs> it's like. Whack! It's like, whoa, okay, sound sound guy. So whoever's in charge of sound design for this film is just not holding back at all. So the Nikki, he takes off. They go out. I'm sorry, let me, I'm getting ahead of myself. Jason pulls the cord outside, making the power go off inside the RV. So they both go out and investigate. Well, he goes out and she follows up like and scares them, and they go back inside together. Well, should have done that. He takes off. He's flying. She's bouncing around the RV. Uh, <laughs> I know. Court's having a good old time. He's I like, know. yeah, I like driving this thing. Shit! What? Ah! Well, this may be jammed. Let me tell you, for a big truck, it's not bad at all. That's it. Pull over. I'm driving. No way, man. I want to rock. Yeah! Woo! This is great. See, I never driven a house before. I like this. This is great. Sounds like you have a flat back there. What are you doing? Is it coming? Ooh, that sounds great. fucking woohoo time and she's just fucking struggling and then when she finally gets her fucking balance Jason just randomly pops out of the goddamn bathroom and pulls her in fighting around I love this overhead shot by the way this this tight space and he crushes her itty bitty pretty face into this wall and imprints it from the outside now they shot this underwater in slow-mo with her face being pressed against a piece of plastic underwater. That's how they did it, according to uh, Mr. Moss on the documentary. In case you are curious how they pulled that shot off, it's a cool shot. It's cool. Yeah, even, it's a neat shot. Even though it's stupid, it's still a cool shot. Um, After Paramount got the dailies, oh, this is that part. Um, This was, this was um the first scene. Uh, with C.J. Graham. That's what I meant. That's why I was putting that in my notes. C.J. Graham's first scene as Jason is the reaction scene from him outside. The little head tilt as he's watching the RV bouncing around. That's the first scene he shot. <laughs> um, 
And the final shot. Oh yeah, and so finishing off the scene, Jason comes out, takes that fucking big ass deer knife, gets caught in the ear with it. And causes him to flip the RV. Jason pops out of the... I love how that door just blasts open. And Jason pops out. Gets on top of the RV and stands. As the bottom of it's just burning. Fucking iconic shot. Love yeah. it. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's also the final shot of the film. that they that While they were filming. Uh... Tom was terrified during filming as there could only be one take and the crashing made the scene incredibly dangerous for C.J. Graham. Although it remains unclear why Graham would be in the van when it flips over as his character is not seen at all until it flips and comes to a stop. And yeah, you can see in the background the sky is like sort of light-ish. That's because it was they were fighting for dawn. Like they were trying to wrap before the sun came out, and it was the last shot of the day slash movie, and that's the iconic shot that we're just talking about with Jason on top of the RV as it's burning. Um, so we cut back to the sheriff and Megan at the jail when Rick calls and says that he found the missing counselors, and that someone did a number on them using Jason's old ML. So, um. And this was a good part for me to add that McLaughlin, the director, was actually offered the chance to direct Scream in the mid-90s. Did you know this? No, I didn't know that. I didn't know he was up for Scream. Wow. Yeah, straight from the horse's mouth. The uh, the, the gig that Wes would eventually go and accept. The, uh, the fact is he declined saying that... Uh, during the he, I'm sorry, he declined. But during that process, he met Kevin Williamson, who admitted that the fantastically self-aware Part Six was an influential film for him on his path to eventually write Scream. So, makes sense. I mean, it's yeah. a good fit when you think about it. Yeah, you know the whole you know meta humor and shit. Um, so we get a quick shot of Tommy in his truck going through a bunch of books on the dead. He then calls the sheriff. What? It's just like, the book is just like a cult. Uh, yeah. Like for dummies, basically. I'm just like laughing my ass off. The just book he settles like, he's got on. This, like he's got this book and he's just like, that's how I'm going to get Jason. Like, <laughs> I'm just going to read this fucking book about the occult. <laughs> hey, man, it works. Um... Yeah, so he, he says that he's got a plan when he calls Megan. and uh, He calls for the sheriff, but Megan answers. Says he's got a plan. Uh, uh, but she says her father's out looking for him. That's right. She says to go... Uh, she, she goes to pick him up at Karloff's General Merchandise, where they sell Coca-Cola. The film contains numerous references to other horror films and other people connected with them. Megan mentions Cunningham Road, Sean S. Cunningham, the director of the original Friday the 13th, and creator of the series, of course. Uh, Tommy mentions a convenience store called Karloff's, which is Boris Karloff. Uh, Sheriff Garris is uh, uh, Mick Garris, director. Um, speaking of Mick Garris, I just picked up 
his movie, Stephen King's Sleepwalkers, to earlier today at uh, FYE for 20 bucks with a slipcover. You ever seen that movie? Sleepwalkers. Cat People. Oh, yeah, the ridiculous fucking movie. Yeah, oh, I, I, I've yeah. seen that. And yeah, I've every seen Every Tom, that. Dick, and Harry has a cameo in that film, too. Yeah, it's like they're cat people and they like are mom and son, but they fuck still or yep. something. Yeah, it's just a weird fucking movie. I remember that. Yep. Yeah, I haven't seen it in like, I don't know, a decade or so. So I picked it up. Wish me luck. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then there's a there's a mention of a town at Carpenter, John Carpenter. The character Sissy, Sissy Spacek. Uh, where I, can I go on? Should I continue? Uh, Nope, that's it. Jason arrives at Camp Forest Green, and the camera pans over to the left to show the signs. Friendliness, sportsmanship, integrity, courage, self-reliance, and intolerance. No clue why. It just does. Because why not? Uh, Sheriff uh, he orders his men to set up roadblocks and perimeters when Rick calls for Garrus after we see bloody pieces of the glasses geek paintballer laying all over the place. Rick says Tommy picked the right day to pull this shit and then says happy Friday the 13th. Um, so then yeah, then we get then we get Sissy's death. So uh, she thinks that Court is fucking around but the sound design is so fucking good. I don't know if it's the Scream Factory edition that I watched because I don't think they did anything with the sound or video for that edition. Because they, they lost time because of COVID. And we're only able to do remasters of the first four. The only thing I know that's new for this one and all of them. Are that your the original mono tracks are included for the first time ever. So, And I happened to watch it uh, earlier in mono. So, But what I'm getting at is the sound design. You can hear Jason. It's clearly him outside. Whereas... Back in the day, watching this on VHS or on cable TV, or even on DVD, if you if you will, I uh, was not able to really hear those things the way I was earlier. And like, it's clearly Jason. You hear like the the smash, the squashes with his boots while he's walking. You hear the breathing. It, it's it's clearly supposed to be Jason. She don't she doesn't know this though. She thinks it's fucking court. She goes and like dumps this her can of uh, I guess 7-Up or Sprite or whatever it is on top of what she thinks is court but no eventually she looks out and Jason pulls her outside and this is where the reshoots come in because originally it was just her getting pulled out and then later on you would see her head propped up no you see her now her head's getting, you hear her go, no, no, no. And then he just grabs her, takes her head, and just slowly twists it off. And, just holds and you it. forgot, you forgot about the slippers. <laughs> the fucking slippers yeah, fly that's off right. and stay inside. Yeah. He pulls her out of her slippers. Damn. Um, okay, so Megan picks Tommy up. He wants to borrow her 1977 Chevy Camaro, but she tells him to, pay, to park his truck in the back before she drives him until they reach a roadblock. She insists on driving this thing. She's like, I know the town. I can do it. The only one person drives it. It's me, yada, yada. Kind of figured that was coming once we saw her pull up in a 77 Pontiac. Uh, or, I'm sorry, a 77 Camaro. Um, 
and yeah, she's, you know, at first we think she's going to get away, and she mentions when she gets to Cunningham, she can lose them, but then when she gets to Cunningham and makes that hard turn, she eventually meets her father who pulls a shotgun out. It's like, you just pulled a gun on your daughter. What the fuck? Um, and yeah, the, and, and also, I don't know, man. I don't know how I feel about this. She keeps on having Tommy like look down the entire drive and it cuts to like random shots of her crotch area. And I'm like, <laughs> do we need this? <laughs> no, not really. It was a little odd. Yeah, yeah it I'll is. Admit. I've always felt, I don't know, I don't know if uncomfortable is the word, but I felt odd watching it because, I don't know, I don't because it doesn't need it, that's why. Um, so yeah, then Megan, no, they're caught, um, then we get Paula's little death fake out with Nancy approaching her with a bloody machete, thinking it's, the camera set up, the shot implies that it's Jason approaching her with a bloody machete, but nope, surprise, Little girl Nancy, she said she found it, and they leave it on the ground and go back to, uh, they did, she says that Sissy and Court are together in cahoots, and they're gonna, trying to scare them, so they're gonna turn the tables and scare them instead, so they go run off, little hee-hee, into the fucking woods outside, leaving behind the machete, uh, on the ground, and, yeah, doesn't end up happening. What happens is that she tucks Nancy back into bed and goes back to her cabin where the machete's gone. And then the wind keeps blowing open the door. She keeps on going to close it when finally, boom, Jason comes in and just fucking massacres her. <laughs> yeah. You just see like blood shooting on the window and her shit. Her body and flies out the fucking window like a goddamn rag doll. It's it's insane. Uh, then Garris, sorry, Sheriff Garris, receives a call that Court and Nikki were found. And I'm asking the question, how long did this happen? That thing was in flames and they're just now hearing about it? It's not a big town. Something tells me they should have knew about this fire earlier. Um, but nah, they know now. And before he leaves, uh, Megan tries telling her, or him, that Tommy was with her when everything happened. But he orders Rick to lock him up anyway. Um, and Paula tucks Nancy in. There we go. And yeah, she's dead. We talked about that already. So, yeah. Massacred. Straight up massacred. The Tommy and Megan have a plan. Uh, they're gonna pretend to argue while, uh, they got to I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure how foolproof this plan was. Because in order for this plan to happen, uh, a phone call would have had to have happened to distract Rick initially. But no, they're fighting. Uh, that hasn't happened yet. Never mind. I take that back. So anyway, Tommy and Megan had this, they concoct this plan of the, the, the faking argument. And uh, Rick gets up while they're doing so and because he goes, because Tommy pulls her in for a kiss out of nowhere, and he, when she, when Rick, <laughs> I'm not sure how comfortable I feel with this line. Remember, he's telling his boss's daughter, "I'll get it for you, babe." Like, who I calls know. their boss's daughter babe? I don't know. It's a weird line, and um, I don't know the actor's name that plays the deputy, but like. 
I noticed like he is fucking all out. Like there is no like nuance whatsoever. He he is just like so over the top at like every line. Um, and it, you know, I don't know. I just enjoy it. Like he is just so like amped and fucking over the top for every line the deputy has in this part. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it just stands out. Guastafer is awesome, and tidbit also I forgot to mention. So, I'm not sure where you're at on fan films. I'm particularly not keen on many of them, but there is this popular fan-made film that came out called Never Strike, Never Walk Alone. Never Walk Alone, right? Yeah, Never, never Hike, hike alone. alone. Never Hike Alone, that's right. Yeah, I, never I've heard of alone. it. I've never, I've never, I've heard of it. I never uh, watched it, though. Oh. Okay. Then we'll not carry on. Just no, say. I know there's like actors from oh, okay. this, and, and it, yeah, I know the all first that. one. There's two of them, and the, at the end of the first one, Tom Matthews shows up, reprising the role of Tommy Jarvis, and then he's back in the second one. But so is Sheriff. I mean, so is uh, well, yeah, he's Sheriff now, according to Guasafero comes back as uh, Deputy Rick, but he's now Sheriff Rick. I, it's it's cool. It's it's a, I actually like both of them, especially the first one. Um, I like how he does a great job of just keeping continuity in check. If, if, yeah, if that makes out. sense. Yeah, I'll have to check it out eventually. All right, cool. Uh, so where are we at now? They're kissing at the fucking bars. Which yeah. I, I, like, I just like that because, like, it's first it's part of the plan, and uh, Tommy's like, oh, shit, like, because she really starts fucking yeah, getting into right. it. It's just kind of funny. And then, you know, she ends up pulling the gun. Uh, wherever the red dot goes, you bang. We hear that for the 20th time in this movie. No. It's like, we do hear it a few times. It, it gets... A little old after a little while, but anyway, um, it's a fan favorite line. You know what? It's a fan favorite line. Fuck that. Hey, I just said it on Twitter. I know you did, <laughs> and I love you for that. So she tosses the keys away and escapes with Tommy, who's now allowed to drive her Camaro while she navigates. Uh, we see he tells her that he drowned in Jason drowned in Crystal Lake back in 1957, and he intends to put him back in that place where his nightmare began. Jason is stalking the kids, approaches Nancy until she closes her eyes and says a prayer. Jason hears some commotion. He's like, Ooh, what was that? Gets out of the, <laughs> gets out of review because she opens up her eyes and he's gone. And uh, Sheriff, and at the, the commotion she hears is Sheriff and his men. They all arrive. Garris finds the remains of Paula in her cabin. One of the cops gets a spike thrown into his head while investigating the pier. And then the cop, who earlier had the whole enchilada, you got a description of plates? I got the whole enchilada. Gets his head squashed after he finds a, uh, a scared Nancy. Um, and a cool effect that I really wish the MPA didn't force them to cut. There's some cool... Fucking st- MPA. I mean, it, <laughs> it didn't get raped the way Part 7 did, but still. Um... Yeah, yeah, it's I, and yeah, the 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 cop he keeps blasting him before he gets killed. And I like seeing Jason like try and jump out at Garris over and over. That's that's right, the kid scares with the shotgun. 
So, Garrus has a shotgun, and I like seeing Jason try and jump out over at Garrus over and over. And, um, it's just funny. All the kids then come outside, so Garrus takes them to another cabin and orders them to stay under the beds until he comes back for them. And he eventually encounters Jason, where, uh, they just fucking get into it, really, as he's shooting them point blank with the shotgun. Um,. Yeah, he just keeps shooting him, and Jason just keeps fucking sitting up. He's just like... No, yeah, he gets up and runs surprise, away. Surprise, bitch. Because he hasn't died yeah. yet. He runs away. That's right, okay. Yeah, That's Garrison, why I'm confused. He's not dead yet. Yeah, Garrison runs away, and then, like, this is where you see uh, some shot, some more shots of the sweet power walking fucking Jason does in this movie. Because Garrison's, like, running, and then you yeah. see shots of Jason just walking, and he must be, like, the fucking most pro power walker. He's that treadmill champion, baby. Like, he's like, I don't leave, both my feet don't leave the ground, motherfucker. I walk, but I will catch your ass. Yes, Tommy and Megan get to camp now. Tommy's idea is to go out into the the lake with a big-ass rock and some chain. He's gonna, <laughs> and some fire. And, and some, some fire. Gasoline. And some that's gasoline all, and fire. Like, that's going to do anything. That's all his plans involve fucking gasoline and fire. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. Uh, yeah, so he goes out to do that while she stays behind with the kids. Uh, meanwhile, Garrus is hiding from Jason. Megan finds Sissy's head and cries out for her daddy. And another overhead shot that I fucking love where it pulls up with her just being frantic, like screaming out for her dad. Uh, Tommy gets out to the lake and he tells Megan to get back with the kids. Uh, that's right. Jason blasts through the cabin door and attacks her until Tommy calls out for him to get him. That's him he wants, remember? Come in, fucking, come on, Megadhead. Come on, Megadhead. Like, yeah. Megadhead, okay. He's like, he calls him a pussy. He's like, come on, you pussy. Come on, you pussy. Jason! Jason, come on! Come and get me! It's me you want, remember? Maggot head. Come on, come on, maggot head. That's it. Come on. So, yeah, we get um, Tommy versus Jason, and I'm realizing Garrus, we forgot to mention he's dead. Meanwhile, he gets bent backwards. Of, of course, many people know about that death, it's one of the fan favorites. Yeah, he uh, he hears his uh, daughter in trouble, so he basically is like, ah, oh, fuck it, I'll just. Do my best to jump on Jason, and yeah, he gets folded like an accordion pretty quick. Yeah, real goddamn quick. And so, Tommy and Jason, Tommy sees Jason walk out, and this is like, I love this shit. I love watching Jason walk into the water, down in, 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 and then he's in deep, and you can't see Jason. So, Tommy lights up the goddamn water for some reason. He's surrounded by a ring of fire. Jason pops up, they get into a little tuffle, and then, boom, breaks it. Um, and when he does so, when he when Jason jumps up and breaks the the canoe, or boat, he ends up... He, like, up, fucking body slams. Yeah, <laughs> like, but he ends up knocking it. the rock down to the bottom, which pulls Jason down to the bottom now. Because, meanwhile, Tommy wasn't able to get this chain-length noose over Jason's neck. 
So now Jason's stuck at the bottom, but hold on. He's going to take Tommy with him and hold his foot. Make him dangle there and try and escape, but he can't can't overpower him. And he eventually uh, goes unconscious or dies, for that matter. Drowns. I mean, drowns. that's essentially he drowns. That's what yeah. he does, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, Megan runs out then, and she takes her crack at Jason. Or, no, she goes to get Tommy. And Jason brings her to the party and tries pulling her down. So she fights to the propeller and we get the wicked neck slice by the propeller with uh, chunks of teeth and shit pop out of the water. And This was actually filmed, do you know where? Nah, I don't know where. Because this, this is part of the reshoots. Or maybe it wasn't. But they filmed it in uh, Tom McLaughlin's parents' pool. In the pool. <laughs> <laughs> Did not the, know that. Yeah, their guts, uh, the, the guts ended up messing up their filter, so we had to replace it. It was just bad. So yeah, uh, Megan saves Tommy, CPR, revives him, spits out water, all that good shit. They she does embrace. Some weak ass C- she does some weak ass CPR too. Yeah, she she like just barely blowing it. Up, like does like two compressions. I'm like, yeah, he's fucking dead in real life. <laughs> That's some shit ass CPR. Yeah. Yeah, Megan saves Tommy, and then uh, Jason lives. So, the original script contained material that alluded to Jason's father, Elias. Didn't happen. In the script, Paula's headstone is next to, next to Jason's, a reference to, to the fact that someone had paid Jason to be buried there, explaining why he wasn't cremated, as they said at the end of, uh, or during the last film. Um,. So yeah, there was supposed to be a final scene in which Jason's father visits the grave, seemingly aware of the fact that Jason's not inside of it, but they were never filmed. Like I said, we got storyboards, and they were also part of the novelization, Uh, and you can also see these storyboards in the many, many special editions that have been released since 2009. There's been like dozens since then. Now, um, so yeah, that's... um, that's it, dude. That is a wrap on Friday the 13th, part 6, Jason Lives, from director Tom McLaughlin. All right, let's do box office receipts. In the operational funds box, we will deposit 250000 American dollars. You take it out. We put more in. I want receipts. All right, so the film premiered on, or was released on August 1st, 1986 from Paramount Pictures. It opened up across 1,610 screens, bringing in $6.7 million opening weekend. That was enough to open up at number two, unfortunately. Um, it was actually Aliens' third week of release. That was number one at the box office. Second week, it dropped 47.8% to number three, bringing in $3.5 million. Total gross overall, $19.4 million against a budget of $3 million. It was the first film in the series which did not place first in the U.S. box office during its opening weekend. And also, the film made $19.4 million with a budget of $3 million, marking the first time that a Friday the 13th installment did not gross over two I'm sorry, did not gross over $20 million and beginning the general decline in box office returns. Go figure. They bring them back like Paramount wanted and they start losing money. Still making yeah. money. 
but still well, bloody. <laughs> I mean, you gotta look at at this time too. Uh, you Yo, know, like this. Anything with that? Yeah, no. I was just gonna say you gotta think about the time too. Is like the late '80s where the slasher craze was definitely dying by this point. All right, let's take a walk to the Chris Corner and see what they had to say about this movie. All right, so Friday the 13th, part six. Jason Lives has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 46% based off of 28 reviews with the critical consensus saying Friday the 13th Part 6 Jason Lives indeed brings back old Voorhees along with a sense of serviceable brain dead fun. It's got a meta score of 30 out of 100 based on 10 reviews and a cinema score of B. Um... Nothing off of nothing from Ebes, but Cisco gave it a half a star out of four. <laughs> <laughs> he said the murderous Jason is back in the latest chapter of the most offensive series in film history, unless Burt Reynolds makes three more Smokey and the Bandit pictures real quick. Okay, you're a funny guy there, Cisco. Jeremiah Kip from Slant Magazine gave the film two and a half out of four stars, saying while there's a Superficial, been there, done that. Why don't we just mock the whole thing quality to this entry of the series? It certainly livens up to what it certainly livens up what has become by at this point a stale franchise. Uh, Kevin Carr from Seven End Pictures gave it three out of five and said although the first four sequels had their own brand of tongue-in-cheek horror, Part Five, I'm sorry, Part Six marked the first step into overt campiness of the series. Um, do, do, do. Carolyn, Karen James from New York Times called it a gory waste of time, studying numerous logic problems and stating that, you know what, of the hardcore fans, we all love it. It's universally loved from everybody. The critics, like, they, they, they couldn't hurt these films no matter how hard they tried. You know why? Because horror was bulletproof in the 1980s. The fans, the, the fans, we were the ones who deciphered when it was time for the series to slow down, which, ironically enough, would slowly begin with this film. But still, that's beside the point. You know, it's we, the, the critics, these they love to hate on these movies. They still do, you know. And and that, so I I can go down and read you twenty more reviews. Guarantee you, nine of them or half of them are going to be you know just as bad. Just nothing good to say half or one out of forced rate, you know, the, the same old shit. So I think of the six that reviews that I read or however many was, wasn't that many, but it was like four or five, but still they were all bad. One was okay, but still you get the consensus. And like I said, it, you couldn't touch us back then. The horror was about the fan. It was a fanfare genre and we were the ones who determined what stayed and what went. So that being said, uh, let's talk about the music, shall we? Music from the motion picture. Let's start with Alice Cooper, who had his fingerprints all over this thing. The man had three songs uh, in the film. Teenage Frankenstein, He's Back, of course, which is the big song from the movie. The Man Behind the Mask. (laughs) 
summer uh hard rock and horror had a minor crossover period back then see docking in the elm street franchise we talked about that uh back in our elm street 3 episode and uh alice cooper funny enough would go on to play freddy's father in the freddy's dead that we were talking about before um but yeah uh, and you hear he's back played a few times in this movie teenage frankenstein i don't recall hearing that or I don't know which scene that is um, but I know uh, Hard Rock Summer's playing when they're in the car and he's down in her crotch area and shit so um, and you know the, the music video for He's Back is fun the song plays over the end credits uh, when I was growing up this song you know when I was a kid this song was always in my head the He's Back um, you know and that was just fun it was just mtv hard rock having a crossover with horror and it was just all about you know making fans happy and a lot of fans had a lot in common that would listen to heavy metal heavy metal and watch horror movies you know so yeah and i you know i miss this era you know you don't get this anymore yeah, with the crossover between like a major artist and a movie i mean every once in a while you do nowadays but i mean this was like a common thing and i miss that like yeah i i'm a big fan of the um he's back uh music in the credits mm-hmm. yeah and also i have to talk about howard manfredini's score Harry Manfredini's score in this movie is everything because he takes his traditional Friday score that we're used to and he adds that gothic level to it and it heightens the entire thing and he actually has standout cues and, and, and parts, pieces, excuse me, that I'm when I think of this movie, I hear them and they're different cues and and pieces that you know because parts one through five have pretty much all essentially this it's the same soundtrack for the most part for better or worse this one takes that soundtrack and adds like layers to it and i can't speak high enough highly enough for this score i think that this is manfrentini's best work of the franchise and i you know i wish this it's times like this I wish I was heavy in the vinyl like a lot of people are because I would own this record I would own this soundtrack on vinyl in a heartbeat speaking of it was released 10 years ago they put it out the uh, soundtrack itself uh, when La La, La La Records La La Land Records sorry released a limited edition 6 CD box set I remember that King, with his first 6 centuries 1 through 6 and 
it sold out in less than 24 hours. I would, you know, if like, I don't know what the, what the big vinyl companies are right now, so I'm not even going to pretend like I do, but I just wish Waxwork, that's one. I know about Waxwork. I wish Waxwork would get their hands on this soundtrack and, and, re, and press it, do a pressing. I would pick it up. Not even having a record player, I would pick up just because I love it so much, you know, and just have it. It would just sit in my collection, that's all. So, where are you at on the score, Corey? Uh, I mean, I like it. It it doesn't necessarily stand out. Like, you know, watching the movie, I'm not like, oh, wow, that's a great score, mm-hmm. per se. Right. But, you know, you, you tend to zero in on this stuff a lot more than I do. But, I mean, I think it's good. It's definitely, I will say, I can definitely tell a difference between this and the other films. It is definitely different than uh, your standard Friday the 13th, in a good way. Right. In a good way, I'll say. Alright, let's talk pros and cons. Before I take on any job, I look at it the same way as it takes to make the thing. Positive versus negative. Now, you mix a little bit of this with a little bit of that, and you get a reaction. Alright, pros for me. Uh, Manfredini's score, like I mentioned, and the sound design are both flawless. Uh, Tom McLaughlin's style and brand slash humor, they, 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 all of it. He just, as a filmmaker, brings a lot to the table. Uh, this is the best Tommy Jarvis of all the Tommy Jarvises. And I think for a tight 86 minutes, this film has the best pacing. It's excellent. So, how about you? What are your pros? So, uh, some of mine are pretty similar. My main one is I just appreciate the tongue-in-cheek nature of the movie. Uh, You know, I'm a big fan of the self-awareness. You know, knowing it's the sixth movie in the franchise, it's formulaic, let's do something different, let's make fun of it a little bit, and it's just fun. Like, it's just entertaining, you know. Uh, I think as a horror fan, you can be in on the joke, and it doesn't get, um, you know, overdone in this movie. I think it's just enough where it's still a horror movie, it's still Jason, but it has uh, those funny elements in there that I really appreciate. Um, my other one is actually, my next pro is actually uh, Jason. I'm a huge fan of Jason in this movie. Um, you know, the actor C.J. Graham, I think, did a good job. Uh, you know, while it's not on the level level of, like, a Kane Hodder, uh, it's still good. Like, Jason's menacing in this. He um, looks good. He fucking is brutal as shit. So I'm a big fan of Jason in this. And then my uh, last pro is just the cast. Uh, You know, for this type of movie, you know, you're not going to get Academy Award winning. But like you said, Tommy Jarvis is the best in this. So I appreciate that. Um, I like the sheriff's daughter. Uh, I forget her name. Um, Megan. (laughs) But she's good. Megan. Yeah, she's good. I I love her so much. Forgot her name. I'm just saying, for this type of movie, the cast is pretty decent. I'm just joking. That's all I was saying. If we take Kane out of the equation, do you have a favorite Jason? Uh, No, they all kind of blend together for me, to be honest with you. Like, the only one that stands out to me is uh, Kane Hodder, you know, for obvious reasons, which, you know, hopefully we'll delve into when we cover one of those movies. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, none of, you know, none of them really stand out to me. I mean, I, I was a fan of CJ Graham in this film, but uh, without having rewatched some of the other ones, because I probably haven't seen any of these movies in 
probably at least five or six years. Like I, I got the Scream Factory set, but I still like this is the only one I've watched now out <laughs> of there on the Scream Factory. So I got to go back and rewatch them. So yeah, other than Kane Hodder, I don't have a favorite. What about you? Um, it's a toss up. It's between CJ and Ted White from Part Four. Um, there's just something about that human nature to the character in part four and the way he's quick and just just vicious that's the word i'm looking for vicious that's what ted white does that's what he demonstrates in the character for part four is just a, a viciousness and he's quick and he's uh agile and it's just a reminder that you know jason wasn't always a slow-paced zombie um you know it, it, and, and um yeah teddy boy ted white so, all right, let's do cons real quick. Get that out of the way. For me, it's the sixth entry of a slasher franchise. Take that as you will. And um, it could have used it to add more gore. I just felt that a little bit more gore could have been added, and uh, that would have been fine. And, uh, you know, other than that, that's all. If you're going into the sixth entry of a Friday the 13th franchise looking for some sort of mind-blowing event, then this isn't your thing to begin with. So... Mine's the exact same. Uh, I just wish the gore was stepped up. Um, you know, it doesn't necessarily need any more kills or anything. I think, like, the level of kills we get is fine, the number. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I just wish we saw a little bit more. You know, that could be down just the way to the movie was shot in the budget. That also could be down to the cuts they had to make to get the R rating. Uh, you know, because the MPA was a bitch back then in the 80s, especially on these movies. Um so, yeah, I'm not exactly sure what the culprit is, but, yeah, I just wish we saw a little bit more. Uh, that's definitely the weakest part of this movie when you compare it to a lot of the other sequels. Mm-hmm. So that's it for me. All right. Um, Mulligan moment. If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? For me, the pacing's excellent, so there's never a dull moment. You're not going to find one out of me. You got, you got, how about you? You got a Malaga moment? Anything you would change? No, not really. I mean, the movie is so short and the runtime is so lean, you know, like there's really nothing, um, I would take out, you know, I will say it is funny thinking about it now. Like Tommy kind of looks like a dick because like he gets his friend killed in the beginning and like, he doesn't seem remorseful at all in any of the rest of the movie. So maybe if you're going to. Maybe if you're going to do something, maybe add some of him, like, in the jail, jail cell. Like, just being like, oh, I got my friend killed. Oh, no. Like, even if he's an acquaintance, like, I would still feel bad. Like, if I took an acquaintance and <laughs> got him killed by Jason, you know? Right, right. All right. Um, finger licking good. <laughs> finger licking good. <laughs> For me, it's always been the ending in the lake. Everything from like when he just does a slow walk into the water till you can't see him at all. He's just walking into it deeper and deeper. I fucking love it. It's creepy. I used to reenact that when I was a kid. And then just the whole... See, for me, it's just embedded in my head. The, the image of just Tommy in that ring of fire in the middle of Crystal Lake with Jason just fighting him. just And then uh, until uh, he just jumps up and crashes and the whole thing goes down including him and the rock and that just the whole sequence and then you got Megan coming out to get Tommy and she gets pulled into things and then she gets the propeller out and says fuck this and just 
cuts his neck and it's a brutal ass scene. And then, you know, we forgot to even mention, you know, the final shot. He lives. Jason lives. I mean, for Christ's sake, I thought for years that Jason lives was a spoiler alert. Which is them spoiling the movie. Like, hey, Jason lives in this one. He don't die. <laughs> so, because <laughs> the, the last scene is just him down there with his eyes open. Like, all right, what to do? Um, so, yeah, what's your uh, favorite moment? Really, for me, it's like you said, it, it's the ending. It's really like the last 25 minutes or so, you know, once they go back to the camp. Uh, you know, I enjoy like the all the cops and everything, you know, all that's good, seeing Jason get some more kills. But then, yeah, the very ending with Tommy, like, yeah, the fire doesn't make any sense why he would light fire, but it looks fucking cool, the fire around the boat. And, you know, as far as plans go, it's not a terrible plan to, like, put him, just stick him in the lake pretty much. You know, so, like, I, you know, I get yeah. it, like, he's gonna be fucking stuck down there. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I've always... Uh, I've always liked that. I always liked the idea of, you know, just like Jason's just chilling down there, like just watching the fucking fish swim by, like maybe watching like a boat go by or something, trying to reach out, like maybe reading a, a piece of paper that's floating in the water or something. I don't know. Like it just kills yeah. time until the seventh one when Carrie what wakes up. What to do, up. what to do, what to do. <laughs> you know, so, but yeah, I the, the whole ending is good. I, I like what Tommy's like just, like goading him to come into the water he's like hey jason you pussy get out of here like i just love that part jason, uh, so yeah the whole come on you pussy <laughs> i just like that shit uh, so the whole the whole end is great that's uh, great all right let's talk movie mvps all right now you might think i'm a little biased but i take my job as a presenter very seriously i will show no favoritism i am here to honor excellence the most valuable player is... Uh, why don't you go first? Because I'm honestly torn between two people. I'm not sure which one I want to give the honor to. So, while you figure, while you announce yours, I'll think of mine. Yeah, so, uh, you know, it was tough for me, too, because Tom Matthews was good as Tommy. is definitely a, a way better Tommy Jarvis than the last movie. Um, but I couldn't give it to him just because, like I said earlier, he got his friend killed and didn't really give a shit, so... <laughs> I don't know. Kind of, in that respect, he kind of comes off as a dick. Um, you know, Magnum is okay. Um, I'm I'm a fan of Jason in this. I like CJ Graham, but I wouldn't say it was standout enough to me. So I'm going to go a little bit um, off the reservation here. I'm going to pick uh, David Kagan as Sheriff Garris because I just feel for the man. Like, mm. yeah, is he kind of a dick towards Tommy? Sure. Mm-hmm. But he seems like a good cop, just trying to look out for his daughter. Right. Um, you know, in the parts uh, at the end when they get to the camp, he's, like, trying to protect the kids. He's like, get under there, hide, and don't come out till I get there. Like, you get the feeling like he's not a bad guy. He's just trying right. to be a sheriff, keep this shit together, and he gets fucking folded up like an accordion at the end of the day. So <laughs> I wanted to pick sheriff because, uh, you know, just to go a little bit uh, different there. Because in my mind, he really didn't do anything that bad. Like, he was just trying to get Tommy out of his town and get rid of all the random shit going on. So could he do his job a little better? Sure, but he seems like a good guy. I sympathize, you know. In my middle-aged life, I sympathize with the sheriff now. <laughs> all right, cool. I like it. Uh, you know what? Fuck it. You only live once, so I want to give the honor to both. C.J. Graham and Tom Matthews, they both equally deserve this award for me, uh, and, and that's all there is to it. 
Um, I think CJ is a strong Jason. And I think Tom Matthews is a strong Tommy. And I'm a big fan of Tom Matthews' work. So I'm trying my best not to be biased. But I think he does a good job here. I think he does a hell of a job. And I think Jason's... I think CJ Graham's Jason is a hell of a portrayal. And, you know, I... It, it just... It, I... I'd be a fool if I didn't uh, pick both of these gentlemen. So yeah, CJ Graham and Tom Matthews are both getting the MVP nod for me when uh, this one. So, uh, which leads us to our final part, uh, final ratings, final thoughts, all that jazz. I say we uh, tie a bow on it and put her to bed. Uh, from a horror standpoint, this is a five-star movie. It's an all-timer up there with the best of them. Uh, you've got a fun script full of just, it's just chock full of horror references, which I love and I appreciate. It's like playing a little Easter egg game while you're watching it, sort of. Even to this day, I'm still looking out for little things that maybe I've missed in the past watching this film as much as I have. Um, but, you know, it's it's also the one that's uh, remembered the most for, for its its ending and its, its quirkiness and humor. And it's also just... It's the best. It's, it's the best of them all. And I'm not ashamed to say that, you know. So, yeah. Like I said, from a horror standpoint, don't at me. From a horror standpoint, this is a five-star movie. I refuse to I refuse to give it a rating otherwise. Okay? I'm, it's not like we're fucking talking about The Departed today. <laughs> or... or or Raging Bull or something, you know. This is the sixth entry of a slasher franchise. So, but from a horror standpoint, it's five stars. <laughs> don't get me wrong. Don't don't get it twisted. All right, Corey, you're up. <laughs> yeah, like uh, like how you're defending yourself already. Uh, Shut up. <laughs> but uh, you know, for me. I, I like the movie. I wouldn't say, like, I love the movie. Uh, so I'll give it three three out of five. I think that's a solid rating. Uh, it's entertaining. And like you said, from a horror movie perspective, it's a good movie. Uh, to me, to get a higher rating, like, to get into the fours or, like, a five, it has to kind of transcend the genre. Like, this would have to be maybe a horror movie. You don't think this tries to, at least? Eh, a little bit. But I don't think this movie was drawing in any new fans. Hmm. Uh, you know... Like, I think the great movies draw in fans from other genres and just have other layers and uh, just kind of stand over the, the gen- their respective genre where this movie doesn't. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's a great horror movie. I enjoy it. Like, it's one of my favorite Friday the 13th movies. Um, you know, like we said before, the tongue-in-cheek nature make me laugh. Like, even the kids are funny in it. Like, I, I love the part when the two boys are under the bed. Dead meat. And he's like, what were you going to be when you grew up? <laughs> like, oh, yeah. I just love those type of lines. Just the funny shit like that, having the kids in there. So the, this movie has so many little things uh, that just make me laugh, and then it does right. Um, like you said, the runtime is good. You know, I, I appreciate a movie that gets in and gets out. And this movie is one of them. It's just a breeze uh, to sit through. Um, you know, there's not a whole lot wrong with it. Um, it's just the sixth movie. You know, it it, it it has to follow some of the stuff for the previous ones. Obviously, yeah, it adds in like uh, some of the funny stuff. But to me, it just doesn't 
do anything that great that I would say like, oh yeah, this is like, you know, one of my all time favorites or four or five out of five. Like it's a good movie. I enjoy it. Uh, but yeah, it, it's just a good movie to me, but yeah. I always have a good time watching it. It's one of the few in the Friday 13th that I actually revisit on a regular basis. I respect that. All right. Well, this episode is sponsored by Karloff's General Merchandise on the corner of Carpenter and Cunningham in Camp Forest Green. Come in for their extra low prices. Stay for the delicious Coca-Cola. And that's a wrap on our Friday the 13th Jason Lives coverage, a film that 100% gets that full film effects seal of approval. One down, many more to follow. Check out our ever-growing collection of previous episodes over at our website, which is, of course, thefilmeffectpodcast.com. And please, follow along on the following social media platforms for future announcements and all up-to-the-minute updates and news. Facebook and Instagram, you can follow us at The Film Effect Podcast. Go over on Twitter, which is actually the best way of talking to us or or, um, just uh, uh, socializing with us. Uh, And that is at Film Effect Pod. Uh, if you're on TikTok, we use it from time to time, time to time, seldomly, and that is at Film Effect Podcast. And finally, if you want to send us any emails for whatever reason, you can send them over to the Film Effect Podcast at gmail.com. Um, it'd be awesome if you're, you know, finishing this up and still have time. You got like 30 seconds or something like that. Just go on over and. Give us a little review and a rating, or either or, Apple, Spotify, go to our website, and leave it there. Um, you know, it, it helps us out so much, and I, I feel like I am repeating myself every episode, but I really do mean it, and I really want to get that chance to just have people interact with us more and more, and again, it, it helps us, it helps get the word spread, and that's all we could, you know, we've been doing this for over a year now. You know, just a little bit of recognition wouldn't hurt. So, uh, come on, help us out. Check out our fewer cast and uh, Armageddon episodes from this week. Two very special ones. Yesterday, we dropped it a day early so we could put this out today for you guys. And Armageddon, which is, of course, Bayhem Month, which we've been just drilling into you all the way that they've been drilling uh, the asteroid for bombs. I, I bombed that one. Um, and <laughs> yeah, check out that episode of a really good one that me and Corey did. And then next week, Bayhem continues with myself and Justin jumping in to uh, talk about Michael Bay's Pain and Gain, the great 2013 classic that I honestly haven't seen in a few years. And I'm looking forward to it. Justin's first time. So that's even better. Yeah. I'm interested. Yeah. I'm really interested to see what he has to say. And it's been a while since I've uh, watched it too. So I might have to revisit it uh, just before I listen to the episode. Cause I'm, I'm excited to hear what Justin's take on it is. Yeah. 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 So, you know, in the meantime, that's, that's coming up. Of course, like I mentioned before, we got episode 100 dropping, uh, first week of Ma. What, what month is that? June, the first week of June. <laughs> Um, and yeah, if, if you want to participate, if you want to send us like a recording or send us a message, you know, just, you know, congratulating us on a hundred episodes or whatever, we're going to make kind of an event out of it. It's going to be a fun, special extended episode. And I put something on Twitter the other day about it, but I guess I'll say something on the show in case someone casually listens to this and wants to join in. Um, so 
our episode will be recorded at the end of the month. So if you could have these in by May 29th, that would be splendid. And yeah, just a audio recording or whatever, uh, or just a message for us to read out loud. Anything you want to do, even if, if, if you want to, of course. Send it over to my personal podcast email, which is ed.filmeffect at gmail.com. And, um, yeah, we'll go from there. Uh, like I said, try and have them in by May 29th so uh, I can have it edited into the episode, which will drop on June 7th. So, yeah. Um, and finally, uh, merch. Merch store is always open. Thefilmeffectpodcast.com slash store. Um, we did drop a few new designs recently. Uh, I'm working on a few more. And that's pretty much all I got about that low prices snug material and just yeah if you check it out uh, from time to time we have ourselves just random 25-35% off deals so check it out though filmeffectpodcast.com slash store and that's gonna put a chain on this episode time to drop it into the lake hmm <laughs> uh, uh. so yeah, guys, thanks again for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week with Pain and Gain. Other than that, it's been fun, but now it's done. Corey? Bye, everybody. Right, take care now. Bye-bye. This concludes our broadcast day.